This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. The podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Welcome to The Racket Report. I'm Frank Morano. This is a podcast that seeks to understand and explore some of the issues and some of the fascinating stories that have taken place in the world of organized crime. I'll tell you, of all the journalists that I've met uh, covering different racketeering trials and all the journalists that I've read in the lifetime of reading newspapers, I don't think there's anyone that has as much credibility with mobsters prosecutors, law enforcement officials, and rank-and-file readers as Tony DiStefano. You've probably been reading him for years in Newsday. He's been covering legal affairs, the criminal justice system, a whole bunch of other issues. I've had the good fortune of uh, covering a number of trials with him. Also happens to be an attorney, as if he wasn't uh, accomplished enough. And he's the author of several books, including one of the ones that we're going to talk about today, Vinnie Gorgeous, The Ugly Rise and Fall of a New York mobster. Tony, thanks so much for joining me on The Racket Report. Well, Frank, I'm happy to be here, and you're too kind for a wonderful send-up. Thank you. So, Tony, give folks an idea of a little bit of your history. I know you are an attorney, but it seems like you've been a reporter for a long time, not just with the with Newsday and writing these books, but I know you also uh, were a reporter for the Wall Street Journal and the Fairchild News Service. How did you make that transition from uh, being an attorney to covering legal issues? Well, what happened was, I, you know, I was going to night law school and in the daytime, I was doing, uh, uh, you know, I uh, had to work. And I, I took a job with Fairchild, and we started covering, among other things, uh, the mob on 7th Avenue. And, uh, you know, I, we st- I started reporting in the daytime and going to school at night. And after I ended school, uh, you know, took the bar, I, I was torn between whether I was going to stay in reporting and journalism whether I was going to be, uh, you know, uh, try to uh, be a lawyer. And I frankly was having a lot of fun as a, as a writer, as a reporter, and I stayed with it. Uh, but the law stuff, uh, you know, helped because it, it helps you get through the, you know, the system, the intricacies of everything and you know, understand what trials are all about and strategies. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a good it's a good thing to have under your belt when you're when you're dealing in this kind of world of, you know, organized crime in the courts. So I stayed with it ever since. And uh, uh, like you said, I took it up with Fairchild. And we did the Seventh Day Avenue mob thing. And then I went to the Wall Street Journal. And at about that time, Newsday was starting up a New York City edition. And they hired me uh, about the time of the mob commission case. So I got involved in covering that 
And, you know, this is not 1986. I'm dating myself, but there you go. And uh, from 1986 on, it's been, uh, you know, court cases, legal affairs, uh, mob, mob trials, uh, some of which you and I covered together. And, uh, you know, out of it, there have been a number of books. And uh, uh, that's it, in a, you know, in a big nutshell. Well, uh, the books are terrific. I've read, uh, I think, just about all of them uh, with respect to organized crime. And I want to primarily talk to you about Vinnie Gorgias, uh, Vincent Gorgias Basciano. But in order to properly understand Vinnie Gorgias and his ascendancy within the Bonanno crime family, uh, and we spent a lot of time talking about the Genovese crime family last week, which has raised a lot of people's interest in what goes on in these different crime families. So if we're going to be talking about the Bonanno crime family, it seems maybe an appropriate place to begin is with your work covering Joe Messino, who was the boss of the Bonanno crime family. But before we discuss Joe Messino, his rise and fall, uh, what is the Bonanno crime family? We're going to use that term a lot in the next half hour or so. What, what is the Bonanno crime family? Well, the Bonanno crime family uh, is really the legacy of Joe Bonanno. Uh, the old Joe Banan- Bananas, who was the uh, uh, one of the big bosses in the 50s and 60s in New York City. Uh, Joe retired in a fashion after he mysteriously disappeared for a while. Uh, but that, you know, is a whole story in itself. But to make a, a long story short, when Joe Banana retired out to Arizona, uh, there were other people who took over the family. Uh, there were a whole slew of uh, intermediate bosses. And, you know, it went on for years like that uh, because Joe, you know, couldn't take over the family again after he had left and uh, did some bit of treachery with the commission in New York City. So uh, there was a bunch of successor uh, bosses. Uh, and among them at some point was Philip Rostelli. Uh, who had, uh, he was the title of the boss, right? But he spent most of his time in and out of jail. He got into a lot of legal troubles for much of his mob career. Uh, at that point, though, he had to rely on people like Joe Messino, who was a very powerful captain in the family, uh, to really kind of be his street boss. And uh, after Rostelli was basically neutralized uh, through prosecutions and ill health and then course, dying. Uh, Messino took over. And Messino was, you know, elected uh, boss of the family. Uh, and uh, he took over probably, I would say, somewhere around, uh, uh, somewhere between 1987 to about 1991. And uh, Messino took the family and he took it at a very interesting time. Because the Bonanno family was sort of on probation. Why? Because it within within the mob, not That's not, right. not That's am, right. among law That's, enforcement. Okay, <laughs> not among law enforcement. What happened was that Joe Pistone, uh, the FBI agent who penetrated the family undercover as Donnie Brasco, uh, you know, embarrassed the family and embarrassed the mob. So basically, after the you know Pistone makes some cases. And got a lot of people indicted. Uh, the commission in New York, the mob commission, uh, put the Bonanno family on kind of a uh, secondary status. They wouldn't let him take part in any of the big rackets, like some of the big construction rackets. Uh, they could do their own thing, 
but they kept him sort of aside and out of the way. And that was actually working to the Bonanno crime family's advantage because they didn't get nailed in some of these big cases like the commission case uh, and uh, the construction cases, which really hurt the other families uh, in the 1980s. So the Bonanno family got reconstituted. Mm. And under Messino, uh, they actually grew in strength and got their own rackets going. Uh, basically, you know, they were doing a lot of uh, uh, extortion. Uh, they were doing uh, uh, gambling, uh, a lot of loan sharking, and, of course, uh, the odd bits of murder here and there. So that's how the Bonanno family under Messino began to thrive. And uh, they had this period where they weren't looked at very closely by law enforcement. Uh, so they were left alone. Just to go back, and you said a lot of interesting things there, but uh, Joe Bonanno, the namesake, the Bonanno crime family, you alluded to his retiring. Now, one of the things that I think a lot of our listeners might have heard in the movies and maybe even read in press clippings, I've certainly heard prosecutors repeat time and again as they're, uh, as they're interviewing uh, cooperating witnesses is that you really can't retire from the mob, that the only way to retire from the mob is to die or to become a cooperator, a rat against your mafia cohorts. How was it that a high profile mobster like Joe Bonanno was able to retire from mob life? Well, when you say retire, it's not in the sense that we, we normally think of it. Uh, if you retire from the mob, they basically are putting you sort of on the shelf, and you really don't have control of much of anything uh, in terms of the mob structure. Uh, the, the old story is that you never leave the mob except in a casket uh, when, you, when you die. Uh, and that's kind of, when you think of it, that's kind of a fanciful way of looking at it very romantically in, in a sense. But, you know, you can leave the mob in real life by just not doing anything and just sort of walking away from it uh, because you can leave a conspiracy anytime you, you basically want to at some point. But it, Bonanno, uh, he, basically, you want to, if you want to say anything, he was on the shelf. He wasn't the boss of anything anymore, except maybe out in Arizona. And what did he do that caused him to earn the ire of the other mob bosses? Well, there was talk that he was conspiring against some of the other mob bosses. This is you were talking now in the in the sixties, uh, and that created them to go into a defensive mode. And he was, they say, he he he, he engineered his own kidnapping, uh, which may or may not be true. But as Joe Bonanno told it in his biography, he was kidnapped by one of his cousins uh, uh, from uh, uh, the Buffalo area upstate. And because he, he got a pass in a sense that he wasn't killed for his schemings. And this was this is the way it weren't. You know, this is a very strange period in the Bonanno crime family because he disappears. Everybody's trying to figure out what happened to Joe Bananas. And he turns up again. And he walked into federal court sometime in the 1960s. I don't have the exact date and surrendered. And, uh, you know, the rest is sort of history. Uh, there wasn't much of a history because Joe really went up to Arizona uh, uh, and he didn't get killed. If he was scheming, the mob didn't kill him. And uh, he was able to live out his years 
I think he died sometime around the early 2000s. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, no, it sounds it's, no, it sounds right. Uh, you, uh, we were talking about Joe Messino. You wrote a terrific book uh, about Joe Messino called "King of the Godfathers." Uh, wh- why'd you call him King of the Godfathers? What made him so unique? Well, I think it's only because he was one of the last bosses standing mm. uh, that old era. Uh, you know, don't forget, you're talking by the mid to late eighties. In early 90s, the mob was under uh, increased scrutiny and pressure from law enforcement. And Messina was really sort of the last of the old, old-timers, old apart from Vinny the Chin, uh, 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 Giganti, uh, who was around and who was out of that period uh, of, uh, of the, uh, you know, the 70s and the 80s. So that's that's really why I call them the, the last godfather. When you, a lot of people claim that. When you talk about Joe Messino, to me, let's talk about the end of his mafia career, because to me, that's the most interesting. Now, uh, usually we see all these gangsters become cooperating witnesses or rats because the prosecutors and the FBI, they always want a bigger fish. They want the guy above him and the guy above him. And hopefully, eventually, they get to the boss. It's one of the reasons that it's so unusual for a mob boss to become a rat. Now, who do you have to give up? You're the top of the food chain. Joe Messino defied that expectation. He was the first full-fledged boss ever to become a rat. We'd seen acting bosses uh, become uh, cooperating witnesses before, but never a full-fledged mob boss, to the best of my knowledge, at least in the New York area. Why would Joe Messino, the king of the godfathers, the last of these old-school mob bosses, why would he ever become a rat? Well, the the answer, I think, is very simply this. After Joe got convicted in uh, 2004, July, uh, he had another case kicking around, and it was a death penalty eligible case. And he saw some of the other defendants sort of get parceled out from that case. So Joe was like the one remaining guy in jeopardy of getting the death penalty. So that, I think, impelled him to say, hey, everybody else is bailing out. Uh, They want to kill me? Uh, That's it. You know, I'm looking out for myself. And that's what it was. Look, it went against everything, uh, uh, every other notion of the Cosa Nostra and loyalty. Uh, He was looking out for himself, like a lot of other people were at this point in time. Don't forget, Joe had a lot of people turn on him mm. to make the case against him. So he's saying... You know, Including his any, own brother-in-law, right? That's right. His brother-in-law, Sal Vitale. And Joe's got a figure. You know, they want to kill me, the feds. Uh, everybody else is kind of getting a pass here. I'm going to uh, take care of myself and take care of my family. You know, he had a wife and a couple of daughters uh, and grandkids, and he was, I'm sure, thinking about them. Very, very much. So he did this, in your view, purely out of physical self-preservation. He didn't want to face the death penalty. I, I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that he saw the, the handwriting was on the wall. There was no notion anymore of loyalty. Uh, Joe certainly didn't inspire loyalty. And he didn't have it himself. I think he, he it was self-preservation. And that's what he did. Forget about all the notions of the Cosa Nostra 
and Omerita and all that, uh, Joe had to protect himself. Um, one of the things that we saw in when he testified, I believe, against uh, Vincent Bacciano was he spent some time talking about the case that you just referred to, the Donnie Brasco case where Joe Pistone, as an undercover FBI agent, did infiltrate the Manano crime family. How did that film, which I think a lot of people are familiar with from uh, Johnny Depp and, uh, and Al Pacino, a great film, mm-hmm. how did that film jive with reality, at least according to Joe Messino? Well, I, you know, I, I think that in terms of reality, I think it, it, it jived close to it. Um, I, you know, the names, I think, were, were may have been changed in some of these instances. Messino, as I recall, didn't really um, uh, deal much with that when he was uh, interacting with Dashiano, if, if I have this right. Uh, because they both got into, they were both in jail together in downtown Manhattan, and that was when Messino agreed to tape Vinny uh, to help make the case against Vinny. So that's how that went. I, I don't know if he actually, you know, I could be wrong, but I don't think Joe Messino dealt much with that whole notion of uh, uh, Donnie Brasco. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but look, Donnie Brasco was on everybody's mind in that crime family. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, <laughs> I, I can imagine. The period of time. And what kind of boss was Joe Messino? Uh, unlike the uh, the uh, customized suits, not a hair out of place of uh, people like John Gotti or even folks like Joe Colombo. Most of the images that we've seen of Joe Messino are him in a uh, in a jogging suit, a track suit. What what do we know about him as a mob boss and as just a character in general? Joe Joe Messino, first of all, he had a number of legitimate businesses. Uh he had the the, the sandwich shop, he had the uh uh catering business. Uh he was a worker guy, he was a working guy. He you know, he was not a nightlife guy. Uh, he didn't, uh, you know, spend time uh, in Manhattan. Uh, he, you know, he had his businesses. He had his legitimate businesses. He, like you said, he did. It wasn't a uh, guy who, you know, wanted to impress the public, being a sharp dresser. Uh, he was very well attuned to surveillance and law enforcement surveillance. Uh, he was very sharp about that and at some point you know he decreed that uh, uh, when you talk about me because he feared that were wiretaps all over the place so when you talk about me you know we're going to pull the ear like the ear and people would when they're referring to Joe they would just tug on their ear when they were referring to him and not mention his name so that sort of kept him off the uh, off the tapes in fact there weren't very many tapes late in his life about Joe. Joe was caught on a couple of tapes in the Angelo Ruggiero uh, prosecution under the Gambino case back in the early 80s. But Joe was very crafty. And in fact, he found a wire that had been placed in his sandwich shop and club in Maspeth. Uh, it was quite by accident, apparently, because a radio picked up certain flushing of a toilet. <laughs> Uh, and they caught it on the radio, and they said, well, how are we getting the noise from the toilet on the radio? And they investigated, and they found the bug, and Joe, Joe gave the bug back 
to the FBI guy uh, <laughs> when he came by uh, because they knew it had been neutralized. He says, here's your bug back. Uh, Joe was very conscious of surveillance. He was, um, uh, I, I think, very crafty in the sense that he had made, as a member of, of, of the mob, uh, the sons of certain of his captains. Now, on the one hand, you may say, that ah, that makes sense, right? But Joe seemed to think, and I think this is true, that he would, by having the son involved in the crime family as well as the father, that was like a check against the father uh, cooperating. You know, from, do, from cooperating. Sure. It didn't turn out to be the case, right? We know that. But uh, that's that, that was Joe. You know, Joe was a you know, very tail-conscious uh, he decreed that it, the social clubs should stop, shouldn't have the social clubs, you know, don't go to funerals en masse, uh, you know, and be very careful uh, because he realized that, you know, the feds were getting the upper hand and they were doing it through surveillance, you know, either either observations or, you know, wiretaps and bugs. Uh, uh, that is wild. Now, we've heard all these interesting deals that different cooperators have gotten. In some cases, like Mikey Scars de Leonardo, they get to keep all sorts of money that they've earned through criminality as part of their final agreement with the governor. In the case of Sammy Gravano, he was able to essentially get a slap on the wrist for committing 19 murders. Aside from avoiding the death penalty, do we know very much about what Joe Messino got in his deal with the government? Did he get any? Anything special? Well, he did. I mean, he did this basically for the benefit uh, of his family. Uh, Joe forfeited uh, close to $10 million in assets when he was convicted. You know, cash. He kept the cash in his house. Now, if you have like seven, eight million dollars in your house in cash, I don't think I've ever leave my house. Uh, <laughs> You'd be afraid of the place burning down or somebody breaking in. And he had coolerans and gold bars and whatnot. So Joe gave that up. He didn't walk away, you know, with a, a big, a big uh, you know, treasure trust. But what he did get was consideration that uh, his wife and family would be able to keep certain properties that were in their name. Uh, and this would generate, I guess, income for the family uh, so that they could they could live and uh, you know, have some sort of existence. So that's what he got. Uh, he, you know, he, he was represented by uh, Ed McDonald, I think, on the cooperation and the former federal prosecutor. And that was a pretty good deal because Joe, you know, took care of his family. And then eventually Joe got out. You know, he got, uh, uh, I guess, relocated under a new identity. And, uh, and he worked out. Joe, it worked out for Joe. And, and that's where he resides now in the witness security program. Yeah, and I don't know where. I mean, everybody. I had somebody approach me once to say that uh, they ran into him uh, somewhere in church, and, uh, and but Joe denied it was him. And uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Joe was maybe somewhere near the New York City area, uh, but I don't know. I don't know where he is. When they before Messino had flipped. What was the relationship like between uh, Joe Messino, the boss of the Bonanno crime family, and Vinnie Gorgeous Basciano, the underboss? Well, they, uh, uh, Joe, um, you know, basically liked Vinnie. Uh, he met him at that restaurant he had 
Joe had a restaurant in Queen called Casablanca, and they met there. And, um, you know, it was Vinny was a up and coming captain in the family. And uh, by all indications, you know, they had a good relationship. Um, and, and that was and that was it. But I, I don't think I don't think Joe totally trusted Vinny uh, just because of the way he was. He was out of the Bronx, number one. And uh, that was, you know, a different crew. Uh, that Vinny was was part of up there. So where did Vinny uh, Gorgeous? Uh, first of all, the name Vinny Gorgeous. We should tell people how he he derived that nickname. How did he get that nickname? There, there are a couple of, uh, of stories about that. One is that because Vinny had a hairdressing salon in the Bronx. Uh, it was a Hello Gorgeous, the line off of I think the Barbara Streisand uh, movie, and uh, that was one iteration of the name. Another is that, you know, Vinny was a very handsome guy. Uh, and he was always well coiffed, a good dresser. And, uh, you know, that sort of, uh, was a secondary meaning, uh, for the, for the term gorgeous. But I, I think probably it was because of that, uh, uh, combination of the, the hair salon and also, uh, his general, uh, uh, appearance, uh, which was, uh, Quite spiffy. And so Vinny becomes the underboss of the Bonanno family around what year? Do we know? Yeah, this is around after Joe gets convicted, 2004. Uh, things are really in disarray in the family. And Vinny um, essentially takes it upon himself to be kind of the street boss uh, and, you know, really basically takes control of the, of the family. He says in Joe's, on Joe's behalf. And he did it uh, in, in the way that uh, he was trying to say that, um, Joe, I'm doing this for you. You know, I'm ru- running the family for you through me which was kind of ballsy when you think about it because, you know, he had no clearance to do this. Uh, uh, And and Messino, of course, we all, we know this because there were tapes of this. Uh, He wanted to give, Vinny wanted to give structure to the family because everybody was all over the place. So he appointed various people as underbosses and, you know, captains and whatnot. And, um, Joe, of course, went along with it uh, because Joe was making a tape and Vinny was sort of implicating himself uh, as the tape was being made. So Vinny really uh, asserted himself uh, while Joe was incapacitated to try to run the family and give it some structure. So Vinny was from the Bronx. He had this salon, Hello Gorgeous. What was his reputation like as a mobster, as a mafia captain, as an underboss, and then ultimately as an acting boss? It seems like he had a reputation among, you know, the, his other mafiosi as sort of a, a legitimate tough guy. Yeah, he was a legitimate tough guy in that world. Uh, he started, though in this period to rub people the wrong way uh, because he's trying to act as the street boss and he was having captains uh, stripped down to their underwear in meetings before they went to meetings 
because they were afraid of bugs. Sure. So that was really burning people up. And people were starting to, you know, sort of not, they didn't like that. Uh, they thought he was just getting too too big for his uh, for his britches. Uh, but, you know, he was a legitimate tough guy. And he had a reputation for being a killer. And as we found out in some of his cases, he orchestrated and was involved in killings. So he was a tough guy. Ultimately, Vinnie Gorgeous ends up uh, getting arrested, and one of the he ends up in the death penalty case himself. Now, based on what you know of Bashiano and uh, with the interviews that you conducted with this book, Vinnie Gorgeous, which are clearly uh, pretty comprehensive here, why do you think Bashiano chose to go to trial, risk the death penalty, rather than do what Messino did and simply cooperate so that he could avoid the death penalty? Well, I don't know who he could have cooperated against, except some under low level, lower level people. He's not going to cooperate against Messino because Messino was above him; is already in the government's pocket at this point. There weren't many other people he could cooperate against, so I don't know if he had that card to play. But I also think that, yeah, look, he could have pled guilty, right, and avoided the, the notion of the death penalty. But I think Vinny's ego. And sense of self-importance was so grand that he thought he might be able to beat this case. Uh, he really did. And uh, needless to say, he didn't. And, uh, he did not. He is currently housed at uh, the Supermax facility in Colorado, right? He was. They moved him to a federal prison in Kentucky. That was the last I had checked. The last I checked, he was, that's where he was. Uh, he was out there at Supermax for probably three years, three, four years. And then they moved into Kentucky. And that's no joke, Supermax. That's where they keep no, uh, terrorists. Terrorists, you're right. You got it. It's like a, a tough place. You know, there's no uh, moving parts in the cell. I think it's all concrete form stuff. And he was on, I think, lockdown 23 hours a day. Hmm. By that, I mean he had an hour a day maybe to do exercise and be in the yard and then, uh, you know, had to be in by himself uh, for the rest of the period. But then I guess in Kentucky, it's a different situation. He's got more freedom. Uh, he's more of a regular prisoner. Because Vinny, they figured, one, they, they thought and they alleged that Vinny had plotted to kill the federal prosecutor in the case. Uh, right. And it, it was the it was not just uh, Andres, the federal prosecutor, but wasn't he also implicated in uh, something with the judge, Nicholas Garifus? Yeah, there was some talk about that. Uh, it's a, one of the crazy aspects of the case, uh, because it was uh, and this is where it gets really strange. Uh, Vinny put um, Vinny for some reason got into the Santeria, uh, the, the notion of Santeria. And he, he, as I remember this, and this was like, you know, a fantastic element to the story, he would write the names of, the, he thought by writing the names of the judges, the judge, the prosecutor, and any other enemy that he would uh, put it in his shoe and stomp a certain way that that would somehow create uh, the right spirit uh, uh, to to put the, the spirits against the government. 
Now, the government, from evidence they got, thought that he had made this list to as a hit list. And that was a whole round of litigation about that. Ultimately, you know, they, they protected uh, uh, Andres, the prosecutor, Greg Andres. And uh, the Gar- I don't think Gareth has got any protection. Uh, to, but uh, for a while, they thought this was a serious threat. Uh, but nothing ever happened to anybody. And then uh, Vinny's family and Vinny to this day, I'm sure, will say that this was uh, you know, part of a Santeria thing. Uh, that is uh, wild. I mean, you think of people that are likely to get into Santeria. Vinny Barciano doesn't usually fit the profile of somebody that would, but uh, certainly he uh, he always defied stereotype. You spent some time in your book writing about uh, Vinny's involvement in something called the Blue Thunder case. What was the Blue Thunder case? Blue Thunder case was a very big heroin case, uh, basically involving drug dealing in the in the Bronx and uh it was uh, uh you know as i recall i think Vinny got Leah Ben Brackman to represent him in that case and it was a case where uh, you know there were serious allegations of uh, heroin dealing and Vinny um uh you know beat the case I mean, he, 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 Ben, you know, Ben, look, Ben, I read the cross-examination that Rathman did on some of these witnesses, and it was actually, you know, excellent. I mean, it was like uh, textbook stuff for a uh, uh, law, law school course. Uh, and Brathman is a brilliant attorney for anybody that hasn't seen him in action. Yeah, no, I've seen him in action a few times, and there have been all acquittals, in fact. Um uh, he probably think I'm shilling for him, but I'm not. But it's uh, you know you give credit where it's due, and um, it was a large case. Uh, I think there was uh, allegations that uh, uh, there was 65 million dollars passed through the ring uh, from about six year period. Uh, and Vinny was indicted in it, and he went to trial, and he beat the case. And he beat the case, and uh, you know and that was it. It could now, have fell in. It could have fed into his hubris later on for that death penalty case and his decision to go to trial there. Well, I'm sure. Uh, you know, I think there was some allegation that Vinny somehow got to the jury, but I don't know. I never saw any anything that, in my view, you know, indicated that was that was true. You know, I just didn't. Yeah, you, know, no, you, you never you never say never in these cases, right? But uh, uh, I didn't see anything. Yeah, I had heard no real serious allegation that that was the case. Now, one of the things that it seems like was not only a kick in the gut for Vincent Basciano from a legal perspective, but maybe even from an emotional one, was the betrayal of his friend Dominic Sicali. Uh, that he had has sort of been a mafia Sherpa for Dominic Sicali, very close to Sicali. Sicali ultimately decides to cooperate against Basciano and others. What did that mean for Basciano? Well, that was that was devastating and was in the ultimate betrayal because Sicali was involved with Basciano on a number of things, including uh, uh, you know, the homicide in the Bronx 
which was, you know, part of his case, uh, the shotgun murder of uh, uh, in the Bronx. Uh, was that Pozzolo? But, no, it wasn't Pozzolo. Uh, Santoro? Was, was it Santoro? Santoro. Yeah. Santoro, yeah. Uh, Pozzolo was a different homicide, uh, and that was uh, Sicali, I think, had some involvement in that. Uh, and that was, you know, look, you got somebody who's with you on a lot of bad stuff and then decides to turn. That was devastating to him. Uh, uh, and, you know, uh, Sakali was, he was on the stand for uh, maybe a couple of days and he just, uh, said it, gave, you know, told it like he remembered it. Uh, uh, he seemed a little, I wouldn't say rehearsed, but he seemed a little sort of, uh, so maybe, you know, I wouldn't say scripted either, but it seemed very matter of fact mm. Mm. Uh, in his testimony, like it had been gone over before, which is not unusual, right? You uh, get that, prepped by prosecutors. That's true. Right? It's that's part true. of the game. In terms of, um, so did you cover two of Bashiano's trials, the death penalty case and then the prior case that sent him to prison? Yeah, there was a prior case, a uh, racketeering case, and then there was uh, a case with uh, the death penalty, which was this, you know, the Santoro issue. Uh, and that, uh, uh, there were both trials. Uh, he beat one of the counts in the first trial, uh, and then in the second trial, I remember when he got uh, uh, convicted, uh, I remember his face, you know, got flush red. It's like he didn't believe it. And he didn't believe it. He, you know, he, he honestly probably didn't believe it in his own mind, or at least outwardly seemed not to believe it. And But that was it. And he... And uh, there was no getting around it. The appeals went to nothing. Uh, and he tried all sorts of ways of trying to fight on appeals and various motions. But you know, he was basically done at that point. The evidence was just too strong. And he had Messino testifying about him. Uh, and you had uh, Sakali, uh, you know, your right-hand man, the guy who was very close to you. And it just went, you know. It was a pretty hard case to beat. In terms of that case, that death penalty case, uh, Bashiano was already uh, doing, I believe, life in prison. It struck me at the time, and I think a lot of other observers, uh, including people that traditionally are very tough on defendants, it struck me as a, a little unusual that the government would choose to take that case to trial when it would probably not alter the outcome of Bashiano's sentence, meaning if he was found guilty or if he was found not guilty, he would still be coming out of prison in a body bag. Um, it, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Why does the government do that? Put people on trial again when they're already going to be in prison forever. Well, I think uh, the government, you know, basically, I think, was being vindictive with Bastiano. Uh, I think you had, you're right. You pointed it out. You already have him to life on a case. Uh, you could probably just try for life on the second case without having to go for the death penalty. But I think they were they were going after him because of not because he killed Santoro 
But I think because as a, as a because of what was alleged about his so-called plot to go after the prosecutor and the judge, I think that was behind it. Uh, but you know, um, uh, the, uh, Bastiano on the death penalty end of this case, you know, because you remember death penalty aspects of the case are always, um, uh, you know, the second, especially a second trial where the government tries to prove that he's worthy of death. Uh, but Bassiano had some cards in his, uh, 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 you know, in his, uh, in his hand there on that. Uh, he, uh, I think it was impossible to overlook in the jury's mind that Messino was doing life and had killed six people, took a role in killing six people. And uh, uh, well, actually, he admitted 12 murders in Messino. Vassiano uh, was convicted of two. And yeah, may have committed more and solicited maybe some others, but we never know, you know what the jury was thinking. But, you know, the equation doesn't add up. You, know, you got Messino taking a walk, basically, uh, and not getting the death penalty. And Bassiano, uh, you know, for less uh, and being put close to the dock uh, uh, for, for basically less, uh, less homicidal acts. So it kind of... I don't think the I don't think the equation was right for the government on this, and I, that's where I think the government mm-hmm. hubris um, uh, worked against it. I don't think they couldn't. I don't think they they couldn't win the moral argument right right on Bastiano towards death. Uh, I don't think they could. Now, I, I, and clearly the jury felt the same way. What became of Vincent Bacciano's sons? I know they had some legal troubles and they were involved in, uh, th- there was some news coverage of them a few years back as well. Well, that's interesting. You know, had they been doing things a few years later, it wouldn't have bothered them. They got um, jammed up on some federal marijuana cases, of all things, in uh, the Southern District. Uh, at least a couple of the sons did. And um, they got convicted. But, you know, they got actually uh, relatively light sentences. Um, I think maybe a year, if not more than two. Uh, and they're out, all out. And they're all out doing, you know, presumably legitimate things. And, uh, <laughs> you know, had this happened now, you know, they might not have gotten as uh, as much trouble mm-hmm. because of where we are with marijuana and the laws. But back then, you know, that was, I forget exactly when it was, but uh, things hadn't changed yet. But I, I keep looking at them and I say, you know, uh, what are they doing that, you know, you're not seeing sold retail all over the place? Sure. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's very true, especially here in New York these days. Finally, uh, Tony, what do we know these days about the status of the Bonanno crime family and the status of uh, the mafia in general? Well, we talked about this, you and I, over many months and years. I think the the mafia in general started off that way uh, is, look, it's weakened. 
over the years it's been weakened. But I think they're in a period of reconstitution where some of the families, Genovese and Gambino, are more uh, secretive and being run by, uh, I guess, uh, committees and triumvirates of people and no longer one big boss. Because you become a boss, you're going to be, you know, you might as well have a bullseye in your back. So that's what I think is going on. I think some of the families are really marginalized, like the Colombo crime family and the Lucchese's. Um, the Bonanos, which is the one we haven't talked about here, is, you know, have, have been seriously weakened uh, with prosecutions from not only Messino's case, but up to very recent days. And they, I think, are uh, in this... Um, uh, they're run by, you know, some street bosses, and they're not like they used to be. In fact, none of this, for some of these families, is like it used to be. Uh, I'm not saying they're not making money, uh, and some of them are. But um, I think a lot of the families, uh, well, some of the families, the Colombos and the Lucchese's particularly, I think are not uh, uh, really, really kind of on life support. Yeah, it certainly seems like uh, the glory days, the heydays of uh, the Italian organized crime, La Cosa Nostra, it seems like those days are certainly gone. Yeah, I think, you know, you're, I, you're right, I think, here in the United States. I think that what we're seeing in Italy, uh, there's still a very potent force. And I think that some of the, some of the Italians in Italy, uh, the Androgata, the Sicilians, are here. And, uh, you know, part of this reconstitution that's going on, uh, whether they're going to be like it was now, I don't think so. I don't think so. And plus, it doesn't matter anymore in the sense that there's so many other crime groups and so many other people doing their thing and making so much more money. Uh, you know, financial frauds, you name it. Mm. Uh, you know, so look, this stuff is, is, is romantic to us when we look back on it. And the mob is, has this romantic streak to it. We all know they did terrible things, but it's part of the now American folklore. And that's what the mob has become. Uh, it's part of our ingrained folklore. Look, I, where would you see in the old days people having podcasts? Right. Uh, you know, right. The old guys, the old informants, the old mobsters uh, doing podcasts and, and writing books and stuff. Not that there's anything about wrong with writing books, but you wouldn't see that. You know, uh, this is, uh, things have changed. It's like, uh, it's like uh, part of our history now. Uh, And that's what we got. That's true. Are there any, uh, because I can't think of one, honestly, are there any forthcoming mafia trials uh, on the, uh, you know, on the docket that you're aware of? Not that I'm aware of. We had the, uh, there was a construction-related case, the Gambinos out in Brooklyn uh, Federal Court. There is one, I I correct myself, there is one involving the Colombo crime family uh, with Andrew Russo. Oh, sure. Yes, that's right. Southern District, uh, where there's there's some obscure labor racketeering. But, But those claims, if you peel back the indictment, these are major, major scams. You know, these aren't major cases. There aren't like seven, ten, twelve murders involved or anything like that. It's it's just a different, it's just a different, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, kettle of soup. Yeah. No, uh, that, that's we're true. not seeing like you used to see it. When we started covering this stuff years ago, uh, you know, you used to have the commission case. You had these big mob cases. You had murders. You had John Gotti's case. Uh, you know, you had all sorts of stuff. It's not there anymore. This is true. This is true. Uh, the book is Vinnie Gorgeous. You can also check out King of the Godfathers and a number of other books that Tony has written uh, related to this stuff. Tony, hopefully you'll come back. We'll chat about some of the, your other books in the future. Yeah, I'm fine, Frank. I, I really appreciate it. I really enjoy being on. You're one of the few people in this genre uh, who are, you know, are familiar with the territory and you know what you're doing. Well, I appreciate that. That's because I know who to read, and that includes uh, reporters <laughs> like you. Thanks very much, Tony. Thanks a lot, Frank. Take care. Thank you. Uh, if you liked what you heard today and you want to help us out, you can subscribe to this podcast. Encourage a friend to do so as well. We'll be back next week with some interesting stories from the underworld. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio. Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the the industry. Call now or go to prioritygold.com.